0: I want to give a shout out to Aventus, the world's leader in trade surveillance for digital assets. Trusted by Coinbase, Gemini, OSL, and many others, Aventus is also helping scores of other firms enter the crypto market. For digital asset trade surveillance, think Aventus. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy to use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone. No account registration is required. Download Exodus at Exodus.com and you're ready to go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, as always, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. And today we have a guest who is in, in a group of people that should have been on The Scoop a long time ago. You know, it's, it's a shame that we've almost done two years or so of the show. And Josh Lim, head of derivatives at Genesis Global, is only making his first debut of course, we've been following Josh, not just on the scoop, but at the block for a long time. He traded equities at Goldman Sachs. He also spent some time right at Circle. He was an early Circle
1: That's right.
0: trader, one of the OG Circle trade guys, then made his way to Galaxy Digital. And now is at Genesis. There's really not a desk that he hasn't touched. <laughs> I mean, there's a few, but these are kind of the preeminent ones. And now you're kind of leading up. Derivatives. You were plucked to build out that desk. I guess a year ago, probably, right?
1: Yeah, that's that's right. Um, a little over a year ago, joined from um, Galaxy, and um, yeah, have been uh, lucky in that the timing was great for the entire industry to really build out more of an institutional-facing business. But um, it's been fantastic to be in this seat with the group of guys that I'm I'm working with at Genesis, and. Yeah, there's really, we're just barely scratching the surface in terms of what the institutional market participants want from our uh, derivatives business.
0: That's a great segue into how I wanted to sort of kick things off with the show. When you joined Genesis, obviously there was, if not zero, close to zero derivative volumes being traded. You kind of built out that desk. Now we're at, as per the most up-to-date Genesis quarterly report, which we'll dig into, we're talking um, in the most recent quarter, $8.6 billion dollars worth of derivatives traded. Um, So clearly a lot of growth, which you kind of can take a bit of credit for, I guess. But the derivatives market overall, we we haven't just seen growth at Genesis, but we've seen a sort of profusion of different products come into market and volumes have grown at a breakneck pace, surpassing spot, I think by some measures, depending on how you look at it. And so with all that sort of, you know, there is the backdrop. Walk us through, like, over the past year. Like, I feel like we went from a market that was, you know, mostly perps on venues like BitMEX and and then Binance kind of came in, and now it just looks totally different. So, walk us through, like, the state of crypto derivatives and and how they've kind of changed over the last year since you joined uh, Genesis.
1: Yeah. A good place to start is, you know, what do people mean by derivatives? Um, Because I think you touched on a couple of different areas when people talk about derivatives, a year ago, I think everyone was mostly talking about linear derivatives of the variety traded on BitMEX, primarily like the perpetual swap market. And I think that's still obviously, a very huge aspect of crypto, for many reasons, among which that, you know, crypto originated as a fully funded spot market, and people just needed more capital efficiency. And so you had this sort of massive growth of linear products across all these sort of uh, offshore, kind of less regulated exchanges. I think that's still a very big part of crypto. And as a dealing desk, as like an OTC liquidity provider, that's something we rely on a lot, that that sort of liquidity, that risk transfer mechanism that a lot of people use. Retail also uses it uh, as it happens for like leverage trading, but a lot of the dealer community also uses it to, uh, to hedge risk. Uh, and I think that's, you know, depending on what day you look at, maybe that's like 5x or 10x the size of this sort of regulated spot market, which is a pretty small subset of, let's say, like the larger spot market, which includes like USDT crosses and things like that. So that's kind of the original definition of derivatives. And I think what's changed in the last year has been the types of derivatives that people want to trade to express like more nuanced views on the crypto market. And that includes basically the puts and the calls you know, packages of options in different formats, different sort of wrappers on those options, whether it's, you know, more regulated, like a, you know, exchange traded structured product, or something that, you know, you can sort of put money into as a, an investment product on, let's say, like a finance or another sort of retail aggregator type platform. And then, you know, later on top of that, even, the sort of nuances of DeFi and, and what everyone is sort of building there. And I think now there's a bit of a race, right, to sort of replicate the centralized exchange infrastructure that exists for derivatives on-chain, like entirely on-chain. And mm-hmm. what would it take to build that? What would it take to entice like institutional market participants to actually use those products instead of relying on the FTXs and the the Wobies and the Binances of the world?
0: So that first wave of sort of um crypto derivative innovation, if you will, the perpetual swap market kind of came about as a like more capital efficient way to trade the underlying, similar to futures in the way that they're structured as a contract. But unlike most futures in as much as, you know, you don't really have that maturity, they keep rolling over, right? So it's kind of like a synthetic way of trading the spot. So how did we go from this somewhat fairly simple structure to Now, all of these new products that are allowing people to express their view on the market in a different way. How did that transformation happen? Like, maybe even through your your seat at Genesis, like, what did it look like?
1: Yeah. So, I think um, a lot of people, you know, including there's been a lot of sort of market commentary from Arthur Hayes and other people about, you know, are options really needed in crypto? Because you can get a fair degree of leverage just trading, you know, perpetual swaps and and futures on these um, offshore exchanges. Um, And I think. The sort of origin for the activities that we're seeing in the option space has really come from more of like the lending and yield world, where yeah, I think this is an area where Genesis was sort of a, a pioneer in some sense in the early days of institutional kind of lending and borrowing, getting access to assets to go short, you know, generating yield and sort of uh, uh, monetizing your assets on balance sheet better. That market you know, obviously had a, a big sort of heyday like 2017, 2018, 2019. And then um, as so many crypto assets went online and the whole space kind of got much bigger, the available inventory of assets ballooned. And, you know, that obviously caused the yields on crypto assets to decline a lot. And so I think a lot of people who were holding crypto assets were thinking, you know, what, what is the next way to sort of generate yield or put my, my assets to work? And that's kind of when in 2020, you had this massive blowout in February and March of that year, obviously the the big crash across global markets, but crypto was particularly hard hit and a lot of people were holding on these assets and they didn't, you know, a lot of people had picked up assets, obviously at the lows, the ones that kind of survived that whole crash. So um, you had this cycle of just vol compression from, what was it, like 150 vol. I think by the sort of end of the summer, vol was back down to call it like, 50 handle or something like that on, on Bitcoin and on ETH also. So um, you had this sort of huge cycle of people getting in for the first time that these yield ball selling programs, call overriding programs in, in a much bigger way than had previously existed. I think there, there was a market for it before, but obviously the Deribit volumes were still growing at that time. And Deribit obviously is the, the sort of main listed market for uh, crypto options. So I think that was the origin. That's kind of how a lot of retail got involved, a lot of high net worth individuals, and then because that you know deepened the liquidity for crypto options, a lot more institutional players got involved and said, you know, I think I can use these sort of instruments to get very precise, sort of leveraged view ways to express my my view on the market into this specific catalyst or maybe on this specific asset. Uh, I want to take a view on this specific asset in a certain way. So. Yeah, that's that's what we're seeing uh, right now.
0: It shouldn't be surprising to listeners that you know across spot and derivatives there were less volumes than the previous year. I mean, this was just a period of insane growth, and you know everybody was stuck at home and trading whatever they could get their hands on. But the one unique stat that popped out to me was the fact that the counterparty base grew by 15%, despite sort of the notional volume coming down a bit. So what were the factors that maybe allowed for you guys to increase that counterparty base? And were, were these mostly crypto native folks, or were they coming from other sectors of the market?
1: Yeah, so that, that 15% was just between Q1 and Q2, our, counterparty, our mostly bilateral OTC counterparty base. I think the majority of that did come from traditional finance market participants getting into crypto in particular a lot of that was driven by folks looking to hedge or take market neutral views using derivatives and to sort of lock in like the yields that were you know prevailing at that time they're pretty attractive sort of basis trades between april and june of mm-hmm. this year so that's kind of where that q2 growth came from i'd say like you know the crypto native hedge fund market or a segment to us has always been the core of like Genesis's franchise, I think. So I think a lot of those counterparties converted pretty early to using options in one way or another. Um And so they're, they're already in there. They're already pretty active. I think they're like, if you see, for instance, like on Darabit, you see like, 100, 200, you know, all the way up to like a couple thousand Bitcoin at a time of options getting traded. A lot of that is related to that sort of institutional flow from crypto native hedge funds. But I'd say like the, you know, the the traditional guys that are getting in, uh, especially the ones that were getting in sort of keeping in mind, April was like the the top, right? That was the Coinbase listing. And I, I, was, I was looking at a chart of Bitcoin the other day. It literally was, you know, the top was basically the yeah. day of that listing. And I, I don't think it was a surprise to anyone retrospectively. I think even while we were living through it, everyone was like, yeah, this is definitely the top. Everyone sort of piled into crypto. and were there any,
0: Not to interrupt you, but yeah. I'm curious, just like on that day or like around that around that listing day, were there any signs in the derivative market at the time that kind of indicated that people were looking to express a view that that we were near the top or close to the top?
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say is, yeah, I I think everyone had that in their back of the minds, but um, Mm. nobody really acted on it in a meaningful way. I think everyone was sort of thinking, you know, this time is different uh, type of mentality. But I'd say the newer guys that were getting into the space from the traditional finance side, I think they were a little bit more prudent from what we were seeing in the sense that they were actually looking to sort of de-risk holdings that they had acquired, like maybe back half of 2020 first month of 2021, trying to sort of play for that, that listing and the the bump associated with it, or they were looking to just capture like these yields. And I think the sort of like good topping signal was just like how much, you know, euphoria was in the market in the, in the basis curve, like in the futures curve, right? Like you had basically three month futures. I mean, even all the way out to like, I think like September and December where we're implying something like 30 or 40% annualized premiums to spot to hold, you know, long positions. So there was just like enormous demand for leverage at that time. And I think everyone was sort of, even though there was this sort of consensus, like, you know, this, this is likely to be a market top. There was all these, other, you know, things that people were throwing in the mix, like the DeFi sort of explosion, the growth in TVL. And like, I think people forgot that the TVL and the market activity and the on chain activity, all that kind of stuff is very, it can be a virtuous cycle, or it can be a vicious cycle, right? It's all it's all kind of like one way correlated. So yeah, I think everyone kind of created these narratives at the top of like, you know, there is organic growth, there's real adoption, and there is, it's just like, you know, you get the overshoot at the top. So but yeah, like, I think, I think a lot of people put on these more, you know, sort of market neutral trades, sort of April, May. And then, you know, when we did get that crash, like all the way back to um, 30, a lot of people you saw, saw go, some
0: big unwinding of the basis trade.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and you could see, you know, when retail got blown out, that the curves went inverted. And, you know, the Fremont point was maybe uh, minus 10 or minus 15% below spot. And I think that's when a lot of people came in and were trying to pick off those lows. We didn't really stay below parity for that long.
0: At what point does the premium between futures and spot look troubling to you in hindsight, like looking to the future yeah. now, like if we get to 40% again, is that going to be where you know you, you would expect folks to kind of de-risk at that point?
1: I think so. I think so. I think um, what that exercise was, was an exercise in how much, it was like the market trying to discover how much capital was in the space to sort of arm these inefficiencies away And I think what my sense is post that sort of may sell off, we've had a lot of people on board with us specifically to be prepared for these types of scenarios. So I think there is a lot more capital um, that took notice of these types of blowouts um, that happen. You know, they're not that infrequent in crypto. I think they're looking for good entries into the space, which which to me means unless there's another sort of massive wave of retail participation that has the same degree of euphoria that, um, you know, earlier this year had, like, I think there's not going to be as good opportunities. I think people are going to, you know, when it gets to, let's say, like, between 10 and 20%, you know, might be kind of the top where people come in and start shorting it.
0: You keep bringing up something that we've been paying a lot of attention to. And this is kind of the, from my vantage point, it looks like it's becoming more of a thing, this, this idea of market neutral strategies. Obviously, they exist in traditional finance, but It seems like they were born out of this last crash, in a sense. It's something that since May, we've seen a lot of firms announce their intention to launch a fund that's market neutral. Block Tower is one example. I think the firm Vision Hill, which was acquired by Galaxy, they also either have launched a market neutral fund or are going to at some point in the future. Do you think that's a fair way of characterizing the environment did the May crash give birth to this popularization of market neutral in crypto?
1: I think the it wasn't really the May crash. I think it was the April run up, right? The fact that you could still find very attractive yields in crypto. I think people started to really dig into, you know, decomposing what is the what is driving those returns? Like what is driving that 30% annualized return? Is it credit exposure to these offshore exchanges? If so, like, are you really intermediating it in a meaningful way if you face a counterparty like Genesis that sits in between? You know, like, what are you comfortable with in terms of the risk exposures that you take in crypto? I think a lot of people started thinking about it then and there. And then the other thing I would say is, like, I think there's a proliferation now of ways to get market neutral yield in crypto that just didn't exist like a year ago. So I think Kind of yield farming, like stablecoin yield farming in DeFi space, vol selling strategies that are more market neutral, things like um, kind of systematic like stat arb type strategies across all the different assets that exist in the space that you would expect to have sort of systematic correlations um, over time. I think there's a lot more of those because there's just more tradable assets.
0: I want to give another shout out to Aventus. Aventus is the world's leading platform for digital asset trade surveillance, market risk, and transaction monitoring. With some of the largest crypto exchanges and institutions in the world using Aventus to drive efficiencies in their regulatory operations and mitigate the risks of fines and reputational damage. Visit AventusSystems.com today to find out why 80% of the firms who take a custom demo become clients. Shine a light on your trading today with Aventus. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Now with the new Kraken app, it's easier than ever to buy and sell over 60 of the most popular cryptocurrencies on the go, 24-7. Simply download the Kraken app, connect your bank account and start investing for as little as $10. Just a minute is all it takes to get started. I also want to give a special thanks to Exodus. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy to use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone. And interactive charts let you view the price history of a specific asset and your portfolio's performance over time. Sync your wallet across multiple devices to access your funds from anywhere. Maybe the best part is Exodus is integrated with the Trezor hardware wallet, making advanced security easy for everyone. Download Exodus at Exodus.com today. Let's take a look at what you're maybe expecting to come. So has the basis trade become popular again, have spreads widen, or the spread rather between futures and spot, or does it look pretty much the same?
1: Yeah, it's, it's starting to pick up again, You know, especially as the back end of the curve is now um, like 70% annualized. Mm-hmm. I think it's because we've just described a very wide range in what the annualized yields can look like on the cash and carry trade. I think people are starting, are being more selective, right? Are kind of picking their points on when they want to enter the trade. And I think a lot of people now are realizing, like, if you put on these trades, even though they're sort of billed as market neutral, you are taking a pretty strong directional view, right? Because the basis is very correlated to spot moves. So, um if you were to sell the basis now at 7 or 8%, you're essentially taking a bit of a bearish bet here that either the market stays range, range bound for through the end of the year, or uh, you, know, you can uh, kind of like, you won't get blown out, I guess, when the spread, when spot rallies and the spread sort of widens, uh, especially in dollar terms, like when uh, spot rallies. So meaning the yield can stay the same, but the dollar, you know, the dollar difference between futures and spot will widen. So you're definitely, if you're trading that in like spot, you know, unit notional terms, you're taking a view on, uh, you, you have some beta. That's a little bit technical, but there's definitely something people are thinking about more. But I do think um, with the different sort of, the different market participants that are coming in to supply capital into the space. I think they are also very eager to sort of explore these alternatives that are not directly tied to the futures curve. And it's just been very, very fascinating to see like people who are discovering a Bitcoin or ETH and digging into it for the first time. And then like, you know, literally three months later, like, you know, how do I trade these like ETH2 like staking derivatives? Like how how can I like monetize, you know, these assets that I wanna wanna stake, you know, on-chain protocols basically. So um, I think the whole space is evolving in that direction where um, people are much more willing and the risk appetite is there to uh, take on more sophisticated types of uh, exposure.
0: So there's more, there's a bit more appetite for risk. I feel like we all have short term memory loss in crypto, even after, you know, May, it's August now. So let's let's get a little bit more risky again. One thing that you noted in the report um, was this increased in demand for systematic protection kind of reflected in the in the puts and calls. Walk us through exactly. So what does that mean? And what's the significance of it?
1: yeah yeah so i think in a normal market in crypto like you'll see mostly um activity on the on the call wing so meaning people are just looking for exposure to the upside or generating yield by selling calls and i think what we saw over this quarter was this trend from something that was like maybe 80 percent of our volumes were just related to the call wing to a decline to something like 50 to 60 percent so much more balanced view and I think a lot of that was from the crypto. I think it's mostly crypto native hedge funds that we deal with that were more willing to engage with us on hedging strategies. So um, like a good example, we kind of mentioned this in the report is uh, you know, when when crypto was hovering around like 55K, we had folks that are basically looking across the available strikes in the put wing. And, you know, kind of optimizing the strikes that they want to do for uh, put spreads. So basically looking for attractive pricing on the implied volatility across two different strikes such that they could buy some cheap sort of protection for their portfolio. Obviously, a lot of crypto funds have gotten very big (laughs) over the last year. So, you know, guys that were, say, you know, 300 million or 500 million or even a billion were buying you know substantial amounts of protection. And there were ways to do this in in pretty smart ways. I think we highlighted one where a fund was basically buying 10% out of the money put spreads, paying you know, 1%, 2% type of premium. So basically looking for that sort of 10 to 1 type payout. And um, they were able to substantially add to their op performance versus benchmark by doing this sort of systematically over time. So meaning you know rolling it over every two weeks when those puts um, expire. I think it takes a lot of discipline to do that because over time the premiums add up. But if you're willing to spend, you know, a couple percentage points of your fund on these sort of hedging strategies every year, you think about like the types of the upside that you have from being fully invested in your fund is maybe a couple hundred percentage points. So there is some sort of trade-off there where it does make sense to have that outperformance, especially on the downside and you can market like a much better sharp ratio to your LPs than than maybe your competitors.
0: Yeah. And I think that underscores um, a really interesting point, which is when you have a fund landscape that has many of the biggest players go from managing 250 million or 500 million or a billion to 1 billion, 4 billion, you know, I'm sure we know of some funds between the two of us that are now Ten billion plus that you know most people wouldn't even know that they're this big at this point might rhyme with maritime <laughs> you know. But if we think about that, I mean, your your hedging needs change and they change very quickly in ways that are maybe unexpected. So how do you navigate that as the counterparty? I, I imagine like you're kind of borrowing from the playbook of Wall Street, but you might have to do things that you weren't doing a year ago because the hedging and risk needs of your counterparties weren't what they are today.
1: Yeah, that's, that's right. I think um, when it gets to these types of notionals, like hundreds of millions to, to billions types of notionals, um, you're still going to have trouble sort of executing that size in crypto options. I think, you know, you can easily get to, let's say, 100 million, 200 million of hedges. I think when you get larger, you know, it would take a concerted effort of a large sort of dealing desk that's well connected to a lot of different counterparties that can help sort of source that risk to really like adequately hedge. I think, I think one of the advantages of being in this sort of seat that I'm in is just like, you know, we, we talk to most people in the space and we have a pretty big balance sheet that comes from, you know, our, our Genesis capital business, the lending business. And so I think, you know, that is, that is like a big upside of being here. I think there's a bit of, um, back and forth that goes on, especially with larger institutional guys, like the sort of macro hedge funds and the, even the banks, you know, we're having a lot of these conversations now where they really want to drill into exactly what our credit profile is. And we want to drill into theirs as well. But, you know, in many cases, these are firms that are larger than us. So, um, you know, we have to demonstrate to them, like, here's kind of how we manage our collateral exposures. Here's the types of, you know, is the terms that we as done CSA terms that we use for most of our counterparties. And, you know, you can kind of see how we manage the risk, how we manage collateral calls. You know, these are kind of the situations where we've, you know, in, in major sell-offs, this is kind of how our book performed. I mean, for the most part, you know, as a firm, we've done pretty well navigating. I think you've re- if you've read our previous reports, you've kind of seen how we like go into some of the bigger market events and how we position pretty defensively, especially our lending business. Um, mm-hmm. I think. Matt uh, and Roe on that side of things, like they really think hard about how much inventory of cash and crypto to have on hand to deal with like sort of these tail events. So, you know, I think we're much less aggressive, I think, than other firms in terms of how we deploy capital. But a lot of it Mm -hmm. is to take advantage of these sort of situations where you have a big blowout, clients are knocking on the door, you know, they want to deploy capital into these basis trades or they want to do something. That requires us to have a lot of assets on our balance sheet. We can go to them and say, "Yeah, we, you know, we do have you know 200 million, 500 million here that you can deploy."
0: I have a few non-report questions, but I figure we might as well kind of put a pin in that and then move on. Typically, whenever we chat, we you're you're always my go-to guy. I hope the other Genesis people aren't getting too jealous. <laughs> but um, whenever we talk about the report, I always ask, "What are some of the things that surprised you this quarter?" We probably touched on a few. That maybe surprised you, but is there anything else that stuck out?
1: I'd say a few things. So I'd say I'm surprised that even with the magnitude of the crash from 60k down to 30k, that there's still a substantial amount of that. Like you know, despite all of the things that went went on with our counterparties, and you know, certainly some of them had some issues, some of them don't exist anymore. But a very very small fraction, right? I think the majority of the people that we dealt with managed to navigate that um, pretty well. And, you know, there was never really an instance of a sort of a capital loss or any sort of impairment on our side, even through all the the kind of turbulence, which is always, been, you know, a surprise to me that we can like manage our books so well, um, both on the lending side and the derivative side, I think. Yeah, a big part of it is, you know, people people are very willing to work with a big institutional firm like ours, where we don't, you know, we don't have these sort of auto liquidation triggers, right? Like we talk to people when things are happening in the market, we sort of try to see what their thoughts on the market are, what their book looks like, and we um go back and forth and decide on a plan for people that um are uh you know facing really fast markets and they, they're you know we never really run into the situation where we have to um put a client in a bad spot. Hopefully that continues into the future. But that that's probably the biggest surprising thing from the quarter.
0: Yeah it makes a lot of sense. One thing that's been interesting to watch over the past few weeks, and no one really knows what the catalyst or sort of driver behind this has been, is the decrease in retail product leverage that's out there on platforms like Binance and FTX, both decreasing, kind of putting the kibosh on the much lauded uh, 100x leverage. I think they've capped it both at 20x. What do you think of sort of this development and what does what does sort of like a decrease in the amount of retail leverage in the system mean for the market and what some of the things you guys do
1: right so i mean generally with lower retail leverage in the system i think we'll just see lower volatility in general right Um, and i think there was already a step down like if you if you kind of recall the way market structure was when bitmex was the dominant mm-hmm. kind of linear derivatives market and then post bitmex like the way the market trades is pretty different you get mm-hmm. much fewer of the sort of like cascading liquidation effect and you know part of that too has to do with the growth of um usdt or stablecoin margin futures so you have sort of this ballast on the other side like you have collateral that doesn't depreciate in a sell-off right so I think that was like a preview of kind of what what it would look like to have less retail participation in a sense that, you know, I think there will be fewer sort of of these like very large um, liquidation wicks, um, both on the upside and the downside. And it's funny, like, you know, there was actually a pretty big one uh, around the time when FTX and Binance both reduced um, their uh, leverage factor, I think there was a big liquidation of finance up to like 48k. But you know, the fact that that was notable is like interesting, because, you know, usually there'll be a lot of those right over the course of the year. Yeah. And that's like a big one that a lot of people saw and paid attention to. And it really took like, you know, a thin sort of like summer market to produce something like that. And, and you know, obviously, all the regulatory stuff and all the kind of retail people having gotten blown out. I do. Yeah, I, I think generally what it means is like more orderly markets and <laughs> uh, sort of Deeper and more substantial liquidity on um, derivative order books, basically.
0: Well, that's good news for you potentially. Well, what about upcoming products? You know, we kind of talked about the first phase of the crypto derivatives market through those linear products, and then you know, more sort of put hedging and and other things coming to fruition, and more complex derivatives. What's what's the next wave? Are we going to see things like structured products, or are we going to see securitization? What's on the horizon, either things that you see other people doing or Genesis?
1: Yeah, I think it's going to tend in the direction of more sophisticated derivative instruments. And I think you can take your cues from, you know, what has happened in traditional markets, right? So in equities, there's the VIX index, which a lot of people track as a way to gauge market risk premium. I think that's, you know, there's a similar sort of measure on Darabit called Devol that they, um, mm-hmm. they publish. It's, right now it's just a number. There's no tradable product associated with it. But I think you, know, you could easily see a world where a lot of people are trading basically implied vol using some sort of you know, future instrument tied to that. I think there's probably a lot of regulatory hair around launching a product like that. Um, you know, either on exchange or trading it sort of bilaterally. I think there's a lot of things that need to be put in place first before people are comfortable trading it. And, you know, I think there's also just a piece of, you know, there needs to be a lot more liquidity on um, on crypto options, in particular on like the, the way out of the money, you know, put put wing, right? That's kind of what you're trading when you're trading these sort of um, volatility derivatives. So I think that's, um, you'll, you'll see I think more people start talking about that and using that as an instrument to trade uh, kind of fear or risk premium in crypto. And then I think in terms of more sophisticated products that, you know, it's funny, it's like when you think about more sophisticated stuff and options, it's usually like retail that ends up using it, right? So Mm. institutional guys understand like everything can be sort of decomposable to like vanilla things and kind of want to keep it simple. You want to have a position that you can trade in and out of. But I think when retail gets more involved in crypto and, you know, I used to trade equity derivatives in in my previous life, especially in particular exotics. So, you know, I kind of know there's like a a huge suite of products in equities and, you know, FX and fixed income and all all the other markets where you, you know, retail participants can buy these sort of, you know, structured products or notes or certificates that embed some sort of payout related to the underlying asset. So I think that market is starting to grow. I mean, you you know, if you look at... um, a lot of the retail platforms like Binance has um, you know, dual currency notes, like that idea of um, embedding some sort of optionality into what is effectively like a retail, like a wealth management type product mm-hmm. is, um, it's, it's only going to grow over time. And the trend generally is to make the the payouts more complicated, right? So that there's more sort of margin of those types of products. So I, I think that will definitely happen probably... I would put it in the next like six to 12 months as there becomes more option liquidity. All
0: right, Josh, I've been I tried to tell you to be short, but I just got so many questions. So this is going to be the last one, I think. But you tweeted a few days ago um, about the sort of thing that everybody's been watching with three Arrows capital being the whale behind all of these crypto punk market buys. When are we going to have derivatives on On NFTs, is that something that makes sense, or you know, how can you how can we hedge these things? Right, there's a lot of questions there, but any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think even before you get into derivatives, there has to be like a almost like a repo market for these things, so like the ability to sort of like borrow or or lend against NFT collateral. So I think a lot of people are working on that problem. There are a number of DeFi projects that are focused on this in particular. Yeah, I, I think that's something that could be on the horizon for more. For firms like Genesis, but you know it is a hard problem, <laughs> and I think these types of things will exist more likely on the sort of more well-established and first-generation kind of projects like CryptoPunks, where um, there's a lot more transparency, more transaction volume, and you can sort of track like prices over time, and you can certainly build like a book of counterparties where you know you can find reasonable backstops for pricing on those assets. So. I think there will be eventually derivatives on it, but I think it'll be very bespoke and and sort of, um, you know, j- just like there are, you know, there's certainly derivatives, like people trade insurance and stuff like that in the art world for auctions and, and stuff like that, like backstops hmm. for auctions. And so I think, you know, you'll see the same thing, I think, emerging in crypto.
0: Super interesting. Well, I can't wait to have you on maybe three or four quarterly reports from now to talk about, you know systematic hedging on on crypto punks or something um, and, the, and the trends uh, playing out there. Well, Josh Lim at Genesis, thank you so much for coming on The Scoop and chatting with us. This has been edifying, enjoyable, and just a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you for having
1: me. It's been a blast.
0: Yeah. um, So, you know, you're on Twitter. You don't tweet that much as uh, Roe. Roe's kind of the (laughs) prolific tweeter. But if people want to learn more about what you're doing and Genesis, where can they find you?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's Joshua underscore J underscore Lim. On Twitter. And you'll know if it's a quiet market and there's not much going on by the amount of tweets I'm putting out there. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. inversely correlated.
0: <laughs> we'll have to chart that out sometime at the block. All right. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate all it. Right. Thank you. The Scoop will be back for you again with another exciting guest. Talk to you all soon.